I will invite you to make your way to Acts chapter 15. Last week we began by talking about the fact that how a person gets saved really matters. Think about that topic and the fact that it's been at the forefront of many of the famous debates in the history of the church. Just consider the one that should pop in your mind. Uh, And that would have been 1517 of October 31st when Martin Luther, the reformer, was fighting over just that statement of how an individual is saved. At the forefront of the fighting was not some kind of small group philosophy or the format of a Baptist bulletin, but this was something that was nailed to the Wittenberg church about the grievances against the gospel and or the fact that there was a false gospel being portrayed through the Catholic church. So the man was willing to risk his life for the gospel itself. It was a fight worth fighting for. He contended earnestly for the truth that people are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But long before Martin Luther made this great stand in Germany, the apostles and leaders of the church had to make a great stand in Jerusalem. And that's what we're studying. Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Talked about that last week. Now this is new to you, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And verse 11, but we believe that you will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. I love the NLT here. 
chapter 15, verse 11 in the NLT says, We believe that we are all saved through the same way, by the special favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great verse. So, here they are contending for the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. Now, when I say exclusivity, what's that mean? It means that salvation is exclusive. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's what this pastor believes. That's what the Bible says, which is more important than what I believe. But it's what the Bible says. It's what I believe. It's what this church stands for, that you can't be saved in any other way. Now, if we lose the gospel, we lose everything that matters. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered unto you of first importance that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and then He rose again. Note, folks, that is of first importance. The gospel is so important. So we should contend for the gospel. We should have uh, the attitude and the fortitude and the courage To look someone in the face when they're teaching a false gospel or presenting to you a false gospel and be willing to say, no ma'am or no sir, what you are saying is an affront and an assault against the free sovereign grace of Jesus to save sinners. We need to be willing to do that. We have to contend. Now should we do it with civility and gentleness and respect? Yes. But contend we must. We must be willing to say to others... That view you have is an assault against free and sovereign grace. So the apostles and elders gathered to discuss this crucial matter. The solution didn't come through a new word of revelation. Did y'all note that? When you read through that, and as a matter of fact, as I continue to preach through it, not next Sunday on Father's Day, but the next, you'll find that James, just like Peter, to defend the gospel of grace to save us, They don't come up with a new revelation. There's not a prophet that stands up and says, Well, God just said to me. What do they go to to figure that out and prove it? They go to the Scriptures. They use the Word of God to defend their reasoning. It was based on Scripture. Now, as I read the Bible and the New Testament, from my perspective, I'm thinking, what's the debate all about? Isn't it pretty clear from the Bible That one is saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? I mean, I get that when I read the Bible, don't you? But it's obvious that the Judaizers did not come to the same conclusion that Paul did. And so you can only imagine the emotional attachment when they're discussing this issue and they're having this debate. These Pharisees are emotionally tied to the fact that they think you can't be saved other than through circumcision and through keeping Moses' legislation, or the law, right? So, notice who stands up and speaks. Are you surprised? Here's Peter. Surprise, surprise. This is the last time that you are going to see Peter in the book of Acts. And I think it's through supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, in, in the superintending the writing process of the Scripture, but also Luke's desire is given here that the last thing we hear about Peter is Peter standing up defending that you're saved by grace through faith. I think that is pretty awesome. But stop and think about Peter's experiences, if you would. He knew what Jesus said in the Gospels. He said to Peter on one occasion, 
It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. And Jesus, therefore, the Bible said, declared all foods clean. Bring on the bacon. Amen? Bring on the pork chops. I mean, I like that. That's good stuff. Well, Peter failed to understand exactly what was meant by that. And maybe he did think on the fact that, yes, all foods are clean, but this is ramping up to teach me something else about the fact that the gospel can make all people clean, no matter who they are, by trusting Jesus. But remember, it took an ark-like sheet coming down from heaven uh, in a vision for Peter to begin to understand what it meant to carry the gospel to the nations. What it meant to share Jesus with others, not just Jews. What it meant to understand that to become a Christian, it doesn't mean you become a Jew. Right? It means that you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, you know Peter's response could have easily been, Lord, I can't do this. You're telling me to rise, kill, and eat everything that you brought down in that sheet? Remember, the overarching aspect is, even though all foods are clean, is that the gospel should go to all people. That's the overarching understanding. But just think about Peter at this point. Lord, you're telling me to eat something that I've never been able to eat in my entire life. I would suspect that Peter felt like a city slicker going into a redneck barbecue shack in Alabama. Right? I mean, think about this. The things that he was not able to eat all that time Now that sheet comes down and the Lord says, rise, kill, and eat. And so, what does Peter do? He obeys the Lord. He begins to see God working. Uh, Men come to him and say, there's one Cornelius who's ready to hear the word. Peter obeys. He goes and preaches the message of the gospel. Uh, Before he ever reaches his invitation, the God of heaven had already captivated the hearts of those who heard and saved their souls. And then Peter says, how can we forbid them to be baptized just like we are? Right? And just like we have been baptized. And the fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit has been given to them just like it has been given to us. So Peter enjoys fellowship and communion with the Gentiles. And then we talked about last week, he begins to feel this pressure. I don't think the pressure was ever to back off that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But the pressure was, how can good abiding Jewish people have table fellowship with Gentiles who have come from pagan culture. And remember, that's one thing when you've got all these dietary laws and ceremonial things, but that moved over to how are people actually saved then, which becomes the issue of these Pharisees. So Peter is going to stand up before the council, and I can imagine that there was a holy hush because Peter, the pillar apostle, He's standing up in Jerusalem, and he says, I have something to say. I've been at the forefront, basically, uh, of much of this. Why? Because it's through my mouth that God first chose to send the gospel to the home of Cornelius. Peter gives eloquent testimony. Really, what he's going to do is enumerate three things that make it obvious that we could track through. First, Peter's preaching to the Gentiles was God's sovereign plan. Peter didn't just come up with this, right? It was God that initiated that plan for Peter to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Second, God has given uh, the hearers the Holy Spirit. That's going to be his argument. And thirdly, God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to being saved by grace 
through faith. No distinction. No more distinction. It's not based on circumcision. It's not based on pork. It's not based on Sabbath observance. It's not based on Mosaic legislation. Why? Because God has cleansed their hearts through faith. Here's the issue. There's no distinction. Why? Because God doesn't clean you up outwardly, externally. God cleans you up from the inside out. It is something that takes place. Here's the issue. There's no accident here in the text as Peter begins to speak. Notice, brothers, you know that in the early days, he's speaking that this is the gospel that I took out, that, that, that God told me to give. And then he mentions that they are cleansed by faith. They're not cleansed uh, through an Old Testament ceremonial covenantal uh, word or action. Isn't it interesting that Peter would grab a word like cleansed? Why? Because the Pharisees felt like you were cleansed by washing your hands up to your elbows about 25 times a day. They felt like that it was outward stuff that you had to do. That you had to observe the Sabbath from sunup to sundown and you had to do all the regulations. But what was their attitude toward Gentiles? By the way, that's what you are. Right? Unless there is a Jew here, nationally born. From their mentality, what, what do they call Gentiles? Unclean. You would be unclean if you're not a Jew. So it's interesting that God, the Holy Spirit, gives Peter this word to use. But how does God cleanse them? It is not by making them Jews. He cleanses their hearts by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, do y'all see how critical this is? He doesn't say he cleanses your heart by baptism. He doesn't say that you're even cleansed by tithing in the Baptist church. You say, well, whoa, preacher, that put, takes me off the hook. I don't have to tithe anymore. <laughs> yes, you do. All right? <laughs> However, you're not saved by tithing. You're not even saved by joining a church. You're not saved by keeping the dietary laws. He cleansed their hearts through faith. It's by faith alone. And so the language Peter uses would have been an affront to those Pharisees. They would have gone ballistic hearing that. You mean to tell me that these... These uh, pagan Gentile dogs can be cleansed without having to do all the things that we have to do to be cleansed in their understanding. The Pharisees would not have wanted to see cleansing in this manner. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why do you put God to the test? Isn't that an interesting way to see this issue? That if you're saying that you're not saved by grace through faith, but you're saved by Moses' legislation and or circumcision or any act in that manner that you do outwardly, then, then Peter says, why are you putting God to the test? Why would you want to test the Lord in this? Well, if you track the Old Testament... What was putting God to the test? Well, it was doubting the Word of God. Right? And not only did they doubt the Word of God, then they began to act upon their doubt. And this was said to be putting God to the test. In other words, since you don't believe, by, since you don't believe that God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are putting God to the test. What strong words. Why are you putting God to the test? 
Because salvation is circumcision free and law free. And God's word clearly was taught to you that you can't be saved by the works of the law. And yet you're putting God to the test saying that you have to do ceremonial things in order to be saved. You're putting an unbearable yoke on the people. Notice it's, it's a yoke that the gospel is unable to bear. It's a yoke that Peter says was on your shoulders and you couldn't bear it. And now you're telling the Gentiles that they have to bear this yoke. Some of you are thinking, well, what is this yoke, pastor? Can I show you? Matthew chapter 23. It'll be worth a turn to the left in your Bible. Okay? Twenty-three of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Uh-oh. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's the background or the backdrop of why Jesus said this. The Bible says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Let me tell you what the hardest burden in the world to bear is that little hamster inside of that wheel. And he's running and he's running and he's running and he's running and he never gets anywhere. He's working himself to death. But he's carrying a burden and a yoke that he's unable to bear. That's exactly what you're doing if you're trying to be saved by works. You're like that hamster. You're running and you're running and you're running and you have a yoke and you have something on your shoulders that is absolutely unbearable, and Jesus gives this invitation, come to me. Come to Jesus, right? My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Why? Because when you're yoked to Jesus, the master, everything changes. When you're yoked to his finished work on the cross, and what he's accomplished for you in order to save you from the works of the law, then his yoke is easy, and his burden is is light. None of us has ever been saved by keeping the law. That's what Peter was saying. We were not saved that way, and now you guys are telling the Gentiles that they have to succumb to that in order to be saved. In other words, this is hypocrisy. And Peter screams that out. Now check out Peter's most succinct statement given to us in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Again, listen to chapter 15, verse 11 in the New Living Translation. We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the special favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, salvation comes by grace through Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile. This is true for Catholics, for Methodists, for black and white, for male and female, for Arabs and Europeans. It's the same gospel for everyone. It's the same grace for everyone. That's how you're saved. 
You don't have to jump through ethnic hoops or religious hoops in order to be saved. One of the worst things that we could ever do in presenting the gospel is to present it in such a way that somehow it indicates that in order for people to become a Christian, they have to become just like us. Now, they have to have the same faith you do in Christ, but they don't have to become a First Baptist Church person in order to be saved. The Jews thought that they had to become Jewish or like a Jew in order to be saved. I hate to say this to you because it'll be an affront to you, but you don't have to become a Republican and have short hair in order to be saved. I know that hurts your feelings, but it's true. If you're a Christian woman, you don't have to wear a dress in order to be saved. If you're a Christian, the Pharisees would say, now you fill in the blank. You know, they're adding to Christ, right? In order for you to be saved. Now, come on, Paul. Come on, Peter. I know you've taught them Jesus Christ saves and him alone and his work, finished work. But that's not quite enough because you haven't circumcised the people. Again, how about that for an invitation? Come and be circumcised. That's not a good invitation, right? Aren't you glad we're not living during this apostolic time in Acts 15? For some of them that may not have gotten this right before then, that's not good for an invitation, right? But Paul is letting them know that it's not you can be saved but fill in the blank. And you're adding other things or taking away. Paul will later say in Galatians 5, listen. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. This is, was a frontal attack against, uh, on the law-free gospel of grace. Now you may think that this is all once for all settled after Acts 15. But the fact of the matter is, Paul's going to write numerous books and he's still having to confront people about the fact that you can only be saved by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. This is going to be ongoing. Uh, we know today in our world that false religions will always have some type of work attached to it in order for you to go to heaven. False uh, cults like Jehovah Witnesses, like Mormonism, uh, whatever you want to add in there, they're going to they're have a works-based salvation. And you know what the Bible says? When we began to understand who Jesus is, 1 John says, if you deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you're the spirit of the Antichrist. So if there are people in these cults that don't believe that Jesus was God and became flesh and became a man, that is heretical and that is a cult. If they don't believe that Jesus is God, that He was the Son of God for all eternity, and they don't believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that's called Christmas, by the way, right? The incarnation. If they don't believe that, they themselves are the spirit of the Antichrist. And that's what we see in this world. We see all these people who say, well... I mean, I know Christians and all, they trust Jesus and all, but there's more you have to do, right? No. Paul says, let you be anathematized if you add to or take away anything. If you preach another gospel. Paul says, even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel, let that angel be anathematized. There is no other gospel. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ and what He accomplished on Calvary. So Peter says, those Gentiles got saved the same way we did. And circumcision didn't have anything to do with it. Praise God. So, mark my words, there will always be an attack against being saved by grace through faith. In our day, it's not circumcision, but it's replaced by a million different things. 
right? It's replaced by tons and tons of things. And there'll always be this propensity for the people of God to vacillate and oscillate when it comes to how we're saved. People don't do it. Look the person in the face and say to them, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Have the wherewithal to do that. The very church exists to glorify God by promoting the gospel, don't we? But we're not just called to promote it, we're also called to protect it. And protect it, we will. We need to make sure that we cherish the gospel enough to defend what we believe. The church cooperated in this vital council in Jerusalem, right here. They showed the unity of faith and they stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a gospel that is worth defending. And again, if we lose the gospel, the Bible says, Paul says in Galatians, you're cut off from Christ if you remove the gospel. This is the only gospel that saves sinners. Now, in conclusion, let me give you something that I really love. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 11. We often uh, read the first part of it, but we don't read it all. And what I call 1 Corinthians 15, especially 3 through 8, or 3 through 10, is Paul's praise to God for grace. This is Paul praising God for the grace of God, saving his soul. And I love this. Chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That would stand up pretty well in the court of law, wouldn't it? This is a lot like a lawyer's brief, and as a matter of fact, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to the apostles. Now check this out. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, it's, it actually means a miscarried fetus. Paul is not saying, I just came to the Lord late. Paul is trying to point out to you that in his own thoughts about his own life, he was very, very unworthy. That he absolutely knew that there was nothing in him that would bring God to love him. There's nothing in Paul that would have conditioned the heart of God to say, okay, this is inside of Paul, I'm going to love him. No, that's not the way grace works. Listen to what he says. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Check out verse 10. This is my song. This is my theme. It ought to be yours all the day long. Listen to it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Ooh, isn't that good? And look, if you're saved today, you are what you are in Christ because of grace. And only because of grace. And listen. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Let me track with you just a couple of things. Verse 10 is the key to all of it. Do you understand what's happening? He's explaining the gospel of grace. And all of a sudden he begins to speak about his own experience of grace in his own life. You can almost hear the quivering in his voice and the trembling of his lips when he says, At last, he was seen by me. I mean, he appeared to Peter and to the twelve and then to James, or eleven, and then to James, and then to me he appeared to me. 
The Lord sought him. He wants to know that all of his salvation is purely by grace, doesn't he? I can't believe this. He was seen by me. He wants you to know today that Jesus Christ alone seeks and saves. No one else. Christ did not appear to him because he was some kind of well-developed spiritual person. Paul says, furthermore, I was a spiritual miscarriage. You get the picture? Paul is saying it's all of grace. One man came to D.L. Moody one time and said, Mr. Moody, I'm going to tell you something in five seconds that it took me 40 years to learn. And Moody said to him, what did it take you 40 years to learn? He said three things. Number one, there's not one thing I can do to earn my salvation. Number two, God never asked me to earn my salvation. And number three, Christ did everything for my salvation. Folks, it's grace and grace alone. And that's the idea of this passage from Paul. Christ sought him through grace and saved him through grace. Folks, I don't... I'm, I'm, I probably don't have to tell you this, but I need to say this to you. When Paul met Christ, it was a personal encounter. It was not just a religious concept. People frequent Baptist churches and churches all over the place because they're enamored with the concept of Jesus and a king and God. But you're not saved by the promise of grace nor the provision of grace. The promise of grace is given, absolutely. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. And the provision, He paid the penalty for your sin. But it's not enough just to think about the promise and the provision. You have to encounter the man. You have to personally encounter Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. It wasn't the promise, the provision. It was the person of Christ that saved him. It's not enough just to hear the promise. And know that there's a provision. you got to know the person. Have you ever had that encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't mean, can you remember the hour or the moment that you were saved? That doesn't mean you're lost if you can't remember the hour or the day. Y'all remember that time frame back years ago when evangelists would preach and evangelists would say, if you don't know the day or the time you were saved, you're probably lost. You know why they did that? Because they wanted to pad their evangelistic numbers of people who were getting saved under their watch. Hello? That's exactly why they did that. But here's the deal. I like what Spurgeon said. Salvation sometimes is like the sunrise. When the sun rises, you can't tell the exact moment when night becomes day, but you know that the sun is shining. And for many of us, it's like that. You can't remember the day or the hour. Here's the principle. Are you in the present mode of believing in Jesus Christ only to save your soul? And what he did on Calvary's cross actually is something that ought to be continual in your life. Today, you know, you may not know the date, but you know that you believe Christ. You know that you encountered the living Christ and he saved your soul. As the old song says by Squire Parsons, he came to me when I was bound in chains of my sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. Not only does he seek and save, but he also chooses and changes. Don't you love that? Paul was one way on the road to Damascus. And Paul says, it wasn't in vain when God saved me. In other words, something took place. There was a change in my life. How many of us frequent church today? And people say they know Jesus. But there's never been a change in life. Oh friends, you can't encounter Jesus and not change. It's not your changing that saves you. It's the grace of God in Christ that saves you. But then it will change you. Right? 
And Paul, I mean, you just hear this testimony. I was one way. I persecuted the church. I tried to kill Christians. Jesus saved my soul, and it was not in vain because he put me to work. Right? He changed my soul. So it not only seeks and saves, it chooses and changes, but it also conceives and calls. I mean, from the moment, you, you do realize that God has a plan, correct? Do y'all know that, that God is sovereign and has a plan? Just look how Paul addresses this in, in Galatians. And again, remember, Galatians was written out of and around circumstances with the Jerusalem council. But chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 1 of Galatians. Listen to what he says, kind of an autobiographical sketch from Galatians 1, 11, all the way down to verse 26 about God's purpose of grace in his life. And listen to what he says in verse 15 of chapter 1 of Galatians. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Did y'all hear that? God set Paul apart way before the Damascus Road. And Paul says, when I began to reflect on the grace of God, I had to go all the way back to the point where God sovereignly set me apart when I was in my mother's womb. That is awesome. And then he says, listen to the word, but when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Folks, I hope you believe God is sovereign. And He's not only sovereign over Paul's life. This is your story. This is your song if you're saved. That God Almighty set you apart before you were ever born. And He gave you the right to hear about Jesus Christ and be saved. That is called grace. Marvelous grace of our infinite God that would give that to us. So Paul knew not only that God seeks and saves and chooses and changes, but He conceives in you life. How can God save someone who is dead and trespassed in sin? God has to make you alive. He has to conceive something in your heart so that you can respond to Jesus. And you know what that special favor is called? I've been preaching on it. You better get it right. It's called grace. Right? That He makes you alive and He conceives in you and calls you. And folks, I want you to know something. Paul was not very impressed about himself. As a matter of fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, he says, not many of us were noble. Not many of us were wise in the standards of the world. But yet God took the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel to save our souls. And you know, when I look around this auditorium, we're not that impressive. The most impressive thing about you is that you're unimpressive. And that's true about me. It's not about anything we've done whatsoever. Think about that. So when Peter was standing up that day and saying, Folks, we believe we're all saved the same way. I want you to know, folks, that's without distinction. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. But He never saves a soul based upon what they can do for Him or who they are favorably before God. He saves you because of His divine special favor upon your life. It's all of grace. Start to finish. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps there's one individual in this body today that heard this sermon and they've been trying and trying and trying to do good enough to be saved. They need to come to the cross today. They need to come to Jesus only for salvation. Take His yoke upon them and be gloriously saved. To acknowledge of first importance that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, 
But hallelujah, he rose again. And Lord, you alone accomplish redemption. You alone can save sinners. You alone lived the law perfectly and then took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary and died in our stead and on our behalf so that we could have your righteousness given to us. And Lord, for that one individual today that's trusting in any other thing, trusting in other things, everything other than you alone, Lord Jesus, will you convict their heart of their need for salvation and the fact that they must trust you alone for salvation so that they can enter in with Paul and say, I am what I am. By the grace of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.